Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It's now over half a century since England last won a major championship. In 50 years of hurt, the story of England football and why we never stop believing, Henry Winter goes in search of the reasons for his country's miserable record at World Cups and European Championships. Tactical conservatism, FA incompetence, press hostility and a pervasive culture of fear are just some of the themes thrown up by Winter's odyssey. But there are also green shoots of recovery, success at youth level and the emergence of a new generation of technically accomplished players give England fans cause for optimism on the eve of this summer's World Cup in Russia. This is my conversation with Henry. Listen out for part two tomorrow where Henry talks us through the experiences of covering a World Cup. The pitches I used to play on right next door to uh, to Wembley. So we used to come out of Wembley Park tube station and, and turn left rather than sort of dip down. And So, the, you know, the Twin Towers was very much part of my uh, childhood Um yeah, the whole sort of England fascination, definitely as a fan, and then I think it went almost from fascination to frustration as as a journalist. I mean, I've not missed a game since '93, and I can actually count on the fingers of probably, well, maybe yeah, one hand, how many I've just absolutely come out of the game completely buzzing. So it was part of a an opportunity. Um, that I was presented because I was on gardening leave, that four-month gardening leave between the Telegraph and the Times, and I thought, well, I must well use it constructively. Um, I went to six matches in that period, partly to keep the run going, but also to, just to find out more. So I spent time with fans, I spent time with journalists, looking at it from a different perspective, talking to them and their perspective, rather than just rubbing shoulders with them, with them in a press box, as you usually do, talking to administrators, talking to players. And I talked to a player from... Every um, every tournament, every World Cup that England have been in, just because they're the experts. And it's it's funny people talk about the sort of title of the book, Fifty Years of Hurt, um, but because it was about to come out um, and there was a tournament going on, the publishers got a little bit concerned. They said, "Well, what happens if England have a really good 2016?" And I said, "Well, it's unlikely, but we need to hedge it on the front page." So they put in the, the strap line of. Uh, and why we never stopped believing, which I thought was was clever, because if England had gone and done a good tournament, then uh, then great. And so I, I gave Roy Hodgson a copy because he'd been very helpful with the book, and I gave Wayne Rooney a, a copy and said, you know, I hope there's something for you to read out in uh, in France, and hope we can update it with a happy ending. Um, clearly, we didn't against Iceland. So, but for me, it was just I just wanted to understand how England can get better, can improve by talking to the experts, by talking to Gary Lineker and Michael Owen and Alan Shearer about the art of penalties. And I chased Alan Shearer around a, around a golf course and he was, he was incredibly yeah. helpful. And I went over to Michael Owen's stables and, and talked to him about 
you know, dealing with pressure, dealing with the media, dealing with, you know, Argentinian defenders. And I went to Gary Lineker's cinema club in South London and just sat and just listened to him and just listened to people who are the experts. Like, you know, some people are a little bit sniffy about Glenn Hoddle on the television, but I had an hour listening to him and I, I didn't get a question in because he, he, he was just brilliant just talking to him. And so it was a, it was a quest for enlightenment, really. And that's why at the end I tried to sort of list what it, what English football has to do and England has to do, whether it's winter breaks, whether it's better relationship with the media. We've seen ironically today with Raheem Sterling. So that was basically the, the, the genesis of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of this being a personal journey, and you do put yourself into the book. I like the way you talk about being at 250 games on the spin, travelling as a fan when you're on gardening leave for, for the, the Telegraph, mm-hmm. um, the fact that you're kind of sharing in those years of hurt, but also the fact that it is a, an actual physical journey. I mean, you, ta- you touched on it there, but you're chasing sheer around the golf course, which is really, really good. Uh, I, I love that kind of colour. Um, you're down at own stables. You're over in LA. I mean, you went over to, to LA to speak to Gerard. And there is this idea of this yeah. kind of physical journey as well, isn't there? Trying to piece these parts of the jigsaw together. Absolutely. I mean, whether that was a sort of literary design or whether that was just me sort of fancying a, a a jolly around northeastern golf courses and, and California is probably a little bit of that as well. I just thought it was something that I wanted to do. And, and I have to say, when I write as a journalist, I've been doing it since 86, I'm actually not particularly personal in, in what I write. I very w- rarely use the I word. I mean, for me, the, the, the story is about the people I'm, I'm writing about, the players, the managers, the fans, the occasions. So actually, this was, this was quite a, you know, a few people said, well, this is very unlike you to put yourself in the in the middle of it. And maybe it was that sort of time in my life when I actually made quite a big decision to change from a media organisation where I've been very happy for 22 years at the Telegraph and join, you know, the, the, the Times. That actually, I was thinking this is quite a sort of reflective period for me, particularly in the, uh, you know, the four months and um, of, of gardening leave. And I haven't got a very big garden, so uh, I thought, well, I might as well take on something rather bigger and, uh, and 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 do the book. But yeah, the journey, I thought, I don't know whether it worked well. I mean, it had some good reviews and some bad reviews, but the, the journey for me, I just thought, was a, a way of actually sort of weaving all the bits together. And it was fun. I mean, it was one of those strange books that actually almost did better overseas because in, the publishers were saying, oh, yeah, it's a really interesting book, but what we really need for it to sell really well is for England to have a great Euro 2016. I said, yeah. well, that slightly undermines the premise of the book. I said, yeah. yeah, but a good, but anything England-related, even a book questioning England, will do well if England you know, come home with a trophy. So yeah. I was going, oh, well, yeah. I can't really win on that one. <laughs> Um, but I, I found the structure of the book interesting because you, you obviously start with these big sit-downs with uh, Jack Charlton and then the second chapter is fascinating with Alan Mullery. And, and I think like, to understand how far England have fallen, you do need to appreciate these times when they were considered at the very elite of world football. And I think it gives you an insight into the, the level of expectations that, that, that does even still exist to this day, you know talking about winning in 66 and then the semi or the Euros in 68, 1970. Um, Mullery actually stating that he thought in some ways the 1970 team was, was um, yeah. more accomplished than 66. And you almost have to understand wh- where they started off to appreciate the trajectory, uh, the, the downward trajectory, unfortunately. The, the downward trajectory. But what, what I found actually slightly uplifting in doing the book, which is basically a, a fairly sad 
lament is actually that all the people I spoke to were incredibly positive about England and the passion. I mean, Ian Wright talking about the first time he was given the England number nine shirt, and he just he was so emotional about it. He went into the uh, the loos in the in the small dressing room at, at Wembley and hung it on the back of the, uh, the the door on the peg and just sort of just sat and looked at it and thought, you know, this is the honour. So. All that sort of passion that came through for, for England was, was, was very uplifting. Abs- and also, absolutely no bitterness from the older players about the riches of the one players. Absolutely wishing them well. I think one or two of them questioned whether they were as passionate about England as, as they were, but that's a generation-to-generation thing. What I found particularly sad, moving, and, it was, and a reminder of how increasingly distant we are from 66 in terms of time... Um, was that just talking to Jack Charlton was was actually quite a, I'm not an emotional person but it was quite an emotional experience going up to the northeast and sitting down with him and talking to him and just going well Beckenbauer you know what you know what was Beckenbauer like and he went he was kind of I mean he was he was just trying to tune in to remember who Beckenbauer was so I got some photographs out I bought from my iPad because I've been warned and you know, we, we know that a lot of the, the 66 boys that, you know, they have been troubled with um, memory loss, dementia, going through the sort of the, the spectrum on that. And it's very sad. It was very humbling talking to Jack Charlton, who's just such, you know, still a well-dressed, proud, upright man. But just when his memory, he just I had to tune in his memory a bit. And, and but the photographs did that, and the photographs right. were, were fantastic. And he, he had there was a picture of Beckenbauer then, and then it was just like he'd rewound 50 years and just went into it, just talked, you know, as if it was yesterday about what Beckenbauer was like. And uh, but I did find that sort of quite humbling when you've got this, you know, iconic name in <laughs> in English football, Jack Charlton, and in Irish football as well. I mean, he's just he's an absolute legend of, of a man as well as a manager as well as a player. Yeah. And then just seeing, you know, just seeing him slightly fading, you know, was, I, I found that very moving and, it, and made me realise how big this is, how long it's been, you know, how the years of her are getting longer and longer and, you know, how, how brutal it is in a way. But yeah. uh, so I, found, I, I found it, you know, I'm quite cocky because I've had a very, sort of, I had a very lucky upbringing, charm, childhood and all that. And just meeting people like that, I did. I went and sat down afterwards after he'd, he'd, he'd left and put him in a taxi and he'd gone home. And I just sat down just to sort of gather my thoughts and go and thinking, my God, you know, what a great man. But the years of, you know, the years really are passing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting reflecting on that initial successful period, and it, and it did seem from reading the book that the, in some ways the seeds of the decline were sown because this incredible success did seem to breed a sense of complacency. Actually, particularly tactically, you make this point throughout the book about how England revert to this kind of tactical straitjacket for, for decades, and, and other countries are moving on, but it was as if maybe this, this sense of superiority that they, they enjoyed early on, in some ways, do you think, undermined them in, in the ensuing decades? Definitely. Definitely. And I, but I think the arrogance was more inbuilt into the Football Association. Sure, yeah. I mean, if, if there's someone who really deserves a whack in this whole book, it is the FA. And I talked to a lot of people at the FA about it, on an, well, mainly off the record. And there was an arrogance in there. There was a, still a 
slight element of sort of gentlemen and players. They looked down on the professionals. The way that Alf Ramsey was was treated was was disgusting. Um, you know, Don Revy when he passed away, you know, there should have been more respect shown to him, despite whatever you thought about him. And I and I talked to his his, his son Duncan, who's, who sadly passed away, about the sort of the way that um, his father was was treated. You know, no wreathlet or representative at his uh, at, at his funeral. You know, just things like that was just. There's some, there were some dreadful people in, on the FA boards and in the building at that time, and I think that was part of the problem. So absolutely, your point about, you know, they're not known as the English FA, they are the FA, and that is, mm-hmm. in a way, it's to be celebrated because th- they started the whole thing off, but there should have been a little bit more humility within the building, and I think with that, you wouldn't have had this, as you say, this tactical straitjacket. They would have looked abroad to... Uh, just just to learn from overseas and it's it's just taken a long long time for uh, for them to basically get out of the victorian era hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It became this, this 4-4-2 system that, that they, they stuck to doggedly throughout this period. And I think I remember in, in 90 where, where Robson changed it to three at the back. And you make this point. I think Mark Wright makes a point in the book as well. And that was considered like quite revolutionary that they, they were actually changing the system for the first time. Yeah, which was absolutely needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's still a sort of debate. And you talk to uh, players who were there like Mark Wright and Terry Butcher of who actually pushed it through? Was it that you know the players wanted to go to through the back deal with Holland, or or was it uh, Sir Bobby? And I, mean, I, I talked to Butcher the other night at a Bobby Robson event, and uh, you know he was saying absolutely he was, he was adamant that it was it was Bobby, um, you know an enlightened coach like that. And Bobby did you know vary some of his Ipswich teams. He wasn't sort of a completely you know, ninety hundred percent four four two. So. But I do think, you know, maybe it's slightly media. I mean, I think we're sort of very culpable in all this and all the the, the, hit, the years of hurt. And I know I upset some of my colleagues with some of the things that I wrote. I've just, but in a way, we were probably obsessed with sort of four four two. And I think as a as an industry, and I'm probably as guilty of this as much as anyone, we're probably more interested in um, personality and the whole soap opera and the circus of football as much as the strategy and the tactics. Uh, I think it's slightly changing. I mean, we've yeah. a lot of the newspapers now and media organisations. And Gary Neville's obviously revolutionised it with his box of tricks. Um, I think we are becoming a little bit more analytical about the, the tactics. But I think for years it was 
almost the sort of the playgrounds, almost that old mm-hmm. amateur English ethos that uh, old tactics is for those cunning foreigners. We just get out and, uh, well, hoof it forward and run after it, which is a pity because if you, look, you look at that 80s period, mm-hmm. um, 70s and 80s, you know, there were some fantastic players around there who just weren't, well, they weren't, you know, properly directed, not by individual coaches, but I think by, by the system. And again, that comes back to... Uh, Charles Hughes and the culpability of the Football Association. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the, the the figures that stuck out in the book to me was was Glenn, Glenn Hoddle, and I was really pleased that you had revisited him to, to, to that extent because I think if you ask anyone, uh, their first association with Glenn Hoddle as England manager, they'll go back to these extremely ill-judged comments that um, mm. ultimately led to to his demise. But I, I think it's in some ways it really deserved revisiting that because. The testimonies of the people you spoke to reflect that this was actually, in some ways, a, a huge missed opportunity for everyone. The fact that they had a very tactically intelligent um, guy who, who was fostering this new generation of really exciting players, was playing them in the right positions. There was a lot of stuff to build on, um, even post-98, but because of these comments, and justifiably so... Um, you know, he left that job, but it, it must have been interesting for you. And, and do you agree with that that he he emerged as quite a key figure in the book? Definitely, definitely. As as player and manager, yeah. I mean, he talked. I mean, he actually of all the people who I had to talk to in the book, he was the one who was was not not difficult, but I think he was a little bit wary of it. Yeah. Even though I'd always got on with him as 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 an England manager until obviously the last sort of couple of weeks when it all went wrong. But um, no, I think he was. You know, he's just such an intelligent individual. Played abroad. I mean, he was—he he just talked about what it was like being a skillful player as a kid, some of the hatchet men chasing you around. Um, and then he, you know, he had this plan. He, he got the best out of Scholes. Yeah. They played him in the best position. He had Rio Ferdinand coming in. Obviously, he had Michael Owen broke through, uh, you know, and he still had so Shearer. I mean, that was a really frustrating period that that uh, England could have done so much more. And th- there's a vague theme that every England manager is the antithesis of the one before, as, as the FA sort of go from, you know, make a knee-jerk reaction. And we went from someone who was tactically absolutely brilliant, played good football, but wasn't particularly good at man management, to, to bouncing towards Kevin Keegan, who was... Yeah. Tactically naive, but very engaging with with the media and and, and with players certainly initially. So uh, no, that was a huge loss if you look back on it. And you know, can you just imagine? I mean, if, if Hoddle hadn't said those things, and it had you know the players who were emerging from the, the, the golden generation. I mean, England could probably would have won a tournament in that period. I found the the current uh, stuff really interesting. The fact that. Um, it now looks as if there's this generation of um, technically able players um, who are emerging. I, I, I found it really interesting, the, the Qatar 2022 stuff and the fact that in St George's Park they have this... Am I right in saying they've got a clock up and it's counting down to... Yeah, well, well they, they, they took the clock down because right. we made a fuss about it. <laughs> okay. And then I think they put it back up again, uh, just sort of out of the, uh, the, the, the way. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it looks fair enough if they yeah. want to do yeah. things like that. They've got to look to the future. But the, the key, I, I know where you're going with this, because we ha- you're right, we've got some very good technical mm-hmm. players. We've seen them do you know, good things at, at club level. Yes. And, you know, it took me about 110,000 words to realise how ultimately 
the biggest the biggest problem now is fear. Yes. It's fear of the media. It is fear of making a mistake. <clears throat> and if they make a mistake, they end up in a in a pizza ad. They end up with their kids being vilified at the playground. They they go into stadiums with thirty thousand fans thinking you let your country down. And that fear inhibits them. You could see it in the Iceland game that there were no, there was no one prepared to take responsibility and stand up like the Germans do because they were, you know, they were just there was fear. So <laughs> it's all about combating that. And maybe you do that with more, I think, with England with with younger players because they are fearless. They'll go in there. They haven't actually experienced all the, the the carnage and the circus and the recriminations that can go with a couple of bad tournaments with England. So. That's why I think England are actually in a slightly better place under Southgate, despite the shallowness of the squad. Yeah, it was interesting in terms of you see the new generation coming through in England are having success at these youth tournaments, um, and the technique on, on display is, is, is amazing. Um, but the problem, and you make this point very strongly, is the pathway is blocked. Um, yeah. there's, an, there's incredible stats from Gareth Southgate's under-21 squad at uh, Euro 2015, and um, you list that they have accumulated 188 league starts compared to 324 in the German squad and 345 in the Italy squad, and you think, wow, there's your 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 gap there that these young guys between 18 and 21 are not getting footholds in the first team. Yeah, I mean, I want to. We went to an Italian restaurant with the uh, with Dan Ashworth, who's technical, still is technical yeah. director of the FA. And I sort of, I got him in in London. He said, "Let's meet at this restaurant." I thought it was quite ironic. He chose a foreign restaurant, um, and then he he lifted, he opened his laptop, um, and just went through all these figures, which I obviously checked. But you know, it is quite chastening. When you see, and it's, it's frustrating because you go around the academies now, and there are obviously good players in there. The facilities are absolutely fantastic. There's a separate, you know, debate about whether academies teach the responsibility and leaders um, and a range of players, where it seems everyone just wants to be a sort of dinky number ten of them. But actually, the pathway is huge. I mean, take Chelsea at the moment. Chelsea, you know, their under 18s won four trophies. They were paraded on the pitch earlier this season, and how many of them can actually? will actually have a chance of, of breaking through. Manchester City have just probably the best training facility in football in the world. And they've got some terrific kids coming there, but, but realistically, how many games is Phil Foden going to get? And whenever I look at the England squad, I always look at how many of them actually played so many games outside the, uh, the top flight. I mean, say, Deli Alley had, what, 82 games for MK Dons, um, uh, Harry Maguire, you know, three seasons at Sheffield United, player of the year every time, and then um, obviously went to Hull, and and now has been well, he was immediately voted Leicester City's player of the year. So I do think some of these players who are emerging at the elite academies are going to have to go abroad, which which some of them you know are doing, like Jaden Sancho, yeah. and that's 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 working out there, or they're going to have to sort of drop down and get games. But <clears throat> as, as Gareth Southgate's always said, Roy Hodgson's always said, and Dan Ashworth's been banging the drum about it, these young players need minutes. They need games, and uh, you know that's absolutely key. But I mean, this, this is not a sort of jingoistic comment. But as more and more clubs get owned by uh, foreign owners, um, more foreign managers who uh, you know, often recruit from the worlds they know, who have foreign agents who recruit the players and the worlds they know, again the pathway becomes even more obstacle strewn for the younger English players. Did you find causes for optimism by the time you got to the end of the book? I did in terms of 
but England still matter in terms of the passion, whether the older players or the younger players. Talked a few of the younger players on not the record, and, and that absolutely that hunger was was there because. But you know, you talk to Harry Maguire, talk to Jordan Pickford. Their first memories of football really are going to school assembly, and the teachers put the big screen up, and they're watching England against Brazil in 2002, and all sign when when Seaman gets beaten by Ronaldinho. So, you know, England matters. I mean, it'll happen in this, this summer. You know, the, the rise and fall is just absolutely huge with the national team. There are very few of the, the you know, that cliché American water cooler moments in, in English life now. But I think the English national team still does that. It still gets pretty decent figures. You know, Wembley still sells out pretty much for, uh, you know, friendlies or qualifiers against sort of Moldova and San Marino. There, there, is, an ex- there is still an appetite given the fact there have been all these years of hurt. So, yeah, I I am am optimistic, but I think you've got to be optimistic to be an England fan because you know when it goes to a big tournament and England face teams who are good at possession, and then when it goes to penalties, you know what's going to happen. But, you know, we're all dreamers. Thanks to Henry for doing this interview. 50 Years of Hurt, the story of England football and why we never stop believing is out now in paperback and ebook. Listen out for part two tomorrow where Henry talks us through the experience of covering a World Cup. Subscribe now on iTunes and listen to the rest of our World Cup series and all of the first season of Between the Lines featuring interviews with Simon Cooper, David Winner, Rory Smith and more. Follow us at Backpage Press on Twitter and sign up to our mailing list at backpagepress.co.uk to get these episodes sent directly to your inbox. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.